The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. And welcome to Spectator Out Loud with me, Lyndon Ken Karen. Each week, we choose our favourite pieces from the magazine and ask our writers to read them aloud. Coming up on the podcast this week, James Heal describes the mess the Conservative Party has got itself into when selecting its parliamentary candidates. Svetlana Moronets is in Ukraine, witnessing firsthand the tragedy of how troops are dying for want of proper medical supplies and training. Melanie McDonough discusses the art of kissing and when a kiss is not just a kiss. And Richard Maidley shares with us his diary in which he ponders Queen songs and cancel culture and the shocking case of Lucy Letby. First up is James Heal. You know the Conservative Party is in trouble when it dared not use its name on leaflets. Instead, it took a two-pronged approach in the last two general elections, a presidential campaign for the national media and local politics for the doorstep. With the Tories now 20 points behind Labour, it seems the strategy for next year's general election is to once again go easy on the Conservative brand and emphasise the local hero credentials of the candidates. All they need is to find some local heroes. Voters want someone who is going to fight for them, and that's an easier conversation to have if they are a local resident, says one newly picked Tory candidate. It's a calculation that associations are making across the country. The journalist, Michael Crick, has been monitoring selections as part of his Tomorrow's MPs project. He calculates that nearly two-thirds of Tory nominees are current or former councillors. All politics is local in 2023. MPs are expected not just to live in their constituency, but spend their week on its casework. We've gone from legislators to super councillors, says one senior Tory. Whereas David Cameron's team spent years finding and pairing A-list candidates with winnable seats for the 2010 and 2015 elections, the snap elections of 2017 and 2019 meant Tory HQ had to rush to find people and often parachuted in outsiders. Recent SW1 psychodramas, the defenestration of Boris Johnson and the swift replacement of Liz Truss by the man she defeated a month earlier in a grassroots vote have left Tory members wary of the creatures of Westminster. Members' enthusiasm for non-Westminster candidates can partly be explained by the main threat in many formerly safe seats, the Liberal Democrats, masters of local politics. We want to use the by-election playbook across the blue wall, says one Lib Dem insider, encouraged by the party's victories in Chesham, North Shropshire, Tiverton and Somerton. The Lib Dem's focus has been on early selections of respected community figures, raising their profile and finding a local twist on national issues. The NHS, cost of living and sewage. They're targeting the 34 seats in the southeast, where they finished second to the Conservatives in 2019. Seats with a Tory majority of 2,000 or less were asked to find a candidate at the earliest opportunity to enable an 18-month by-election. There have been savvy selections in places such as Wimbledon and Winchester, where the local vet was chosen. New seats offer new opportunities too. In the freshly created constituency of Harpenden and Berkhamsted, the Lib Dem candidate has been bombarded by invitations to events by constituents who mistakenly believe she's the sitting MP. A party solely comprised of local candidates can pose problems. For one thing, the favourite sons being chosen do have a tendency to be sons. 
The proportion of female candidates selected is even lower than the proportion of women on the current Tory benches, one quarter female. Although Tories like to mock Labour's policy of all women shortlists, some Conservatives are concerned by the tendency of associations to select men in their 30s for plum seats which they could well hold for decades, especially when support for the party among female voters has collapsed. Women are now more likely to vote for Labour than men, a reversal of the post-war trend. It's not just that local candidates are seen as more attractive. The barriers to outsiders have been fortified. The necessary whining, dining, networking and travel prior to a selection meeting eat into the budgets of plucky hopefuls. One unsuccessful candidate puts their lost potential earnings at around £20,000. Others talk darkly of local stitch-ups, whereby members are presented with a weakened field to pick from. In a macro sense, it's a death knell for the party, says one Westminster insider of their party's recent choices. It's local mediocrity and nepotism at the expense of talent. These are supposed to be the future leaders of the country. Some Tories say the 2019 intake of MPs, some of whom are quitting or defecting, is a taste of what is to come. Who is going to be doing this job in 10 years' time? asks one greying minister in the middle ranks. The inclusion of Iceland boss Richard Walker on the candidates list was welcomed as a sign of ambition, but it's a far cry from the days of Cameron's A-list, and perhaps a recognition that the Tory party has lost much of its appeal for people who want to enter politics. One leading London lawyer, enthusiastic to stand, was dissuaded from applying by the demanding canvassing expectations of Conservative campaign headquarters. Rishi Sunak, himself a relatively new MP, having been elected in 2015, has no great love of or interest in the politics of party candidate selection, but others certainly do. MPs in the Conservative Growth Group are seeking to support free market enthusiasts in future selections, rather than those who, like certain rebel Tories, appear to see politics as a means of wangling greater state spending for their constituencies. The new intake have been small-scale socialists, complains one cabinet member. Once Tory MPs' groups were about ideas, now they all want bribes. Rupert Harrison, Katie Lamb and Nick Timothy fit the tradition of senior advisers moving into politics. There are not many others. For ambitious outsiders, their best hope is to tour the circuit until the right seat comes up. It's a numbers game, says one serial applicant cheerily. Tory associations are, as one chairman puts it, funny things where members cherish the right to pick the candidate they want. Much like dogs and owners, their idiosyncrasies are often reflected in their choice of MP. Twenty years ago, Boris Johnson's talents wowed the burghers of Henley, but failed to move the members of Rayleigh. They chose Marc Francois instead. How will such people shape a Tory party that, on current polling, is projected to be reduced to just 135 MPs? If this bleak prediction comes to pass, then much will depend on the quality of the happy few. It's one of the many scenarios that the Tories, facing a stubborn 20-point deficit in the polls, prefer not to think about. That was James Heal. Next is Svetlana Moronets. It's past midnight and I'm standing in silence with the crew of a military ambulance on the edge of the Donetsk region. The village is dark to avoid attracting the attention of Russian drones. The paramedics move with quiet determination, lifting blood-soaked stretchers and firing morning injured soldiers from one vehicle to the next. I see a wounded man with bandages where his legs used to be. His severed limb sits next to him in a bag. There are no figures for how many Ukrainians have been maimed in this war, nor there are proper figures for the dead. Kyiv doesn't give body counts, saying only that Ukrainian casualties are ten times less than Russia's. Keeping the numbers secret prevents scrutiny. The US estimates that at least 17,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed in action. Another official told the New York Times the number could be as high as 70,000. 
I'm told by those working here that many of those lost in the war die while they're being moved back to safety rather than on the front line. The long journeys to hospital, sometimes up to 10 hours, can be little and the availability of the first aid is the difference between life and death. Ukrainians believe that the very best care would be available for their soldiers, but the stark truth is emerging. Soldiers are dying in their hundreds or even thousands due to poor medical provision. The problem is being ignored by the Ukrainian command, whose focus is on sourcing weapons and pushing the counteroffensive rather than prioritizing injured fighters. Word of this has spread and Ukrainians are responding by donating to independent medical units serving on the front line. I'm with one such group, the Hospitalers. It's a Ukrainian volunteer medical battalion that works closely with frontline troops. I see the Hospitalers take in six injured soldiers who have been handed over to them by combat medics. These men were hurt about five hours ago. It takes four more hours to get them to the hospital in Dnipro. This is fight for life. Our task is to keep them going until they reach the hospital, to help them survive. Once there, they will receive more advanced medical assistance, explains Toronto 28, a paramedic. I ask him who would be rescuing these soldiers were it not for the hospitalers volunteers. Nobody, he replies. Ukraine has mobilized more than half a million people into the military and it badly needs tanks and aircraft for the war effort. This message is the one Ukraine's allies have received. Give us the tools and we will finish the job. But there is also a far less publicized but no less urgent need for medical aid, including for vehicles to transport the injured to hospitals. The bureaucracy surrounding the first aid process is to blame for many of the shortages. If a hospital vehicle is destroyed by enemy fire, it is not registered as being out of action until an official investigation has been carried out. This can take up to six months. Until the paperwork is done, the vehicle stays on the books and is not replaced. It's common to find military brigades that have lost 80% of their evacuation transport, but that can't be resupplied because the official report doesn't acknowledge that the vehicles have been destroyed. As a result, volunteers are taking matters into their own hands. I'm showing around Avstrika, a 100,000 mobile hospital bus funded by donations. It is a unique unit which can carry up to 33 soldiers, with six on stretches. One of the paramedics I meet is an American volunteer, Victor Miller, 34, who served in the US Navy and last year joined hospitalers. If you have it within yourself to go and do something and help people, you should do it. He tells me, it's only a matter of time till the war moves past Ukraine. He talks about the shortage of medics and says the far fewer foreign volunteers are there now than there were last year. We had 50, now we have fewer than 10 foreign paramedics, he says. Another problem is that corruption has been allowed to flourish. One example is the proliferation of low-quality medical supplies being used to treat Ukrainian soldiers. A few weeks ago, Volodymyr Prudnikov, the head of Ukraine's Medical Forces Command's Procurement Department, was accused of supplying 11,000 uncertified Chinese medical kits to the front line. It is alleged that Prudnikov awarded 1.5 million pounds worth of contracts to a company co-founded by his daughter-in-law and was attempting to pass the Chinese kits off as NATO standard. He has been fired and now faces an investigation but has yet to comment. 
It's just one example of the profiteering that is needlessly risking the lives of soldiers. Another example of corruption occurred last year in Lviv, where 10,000 tactical first aid kits worth 700,000 pounds were sent by American volunteers and then mysteriously disappeared. It was recently reported that the US is investigating this case. More questions arise when it comes to the contents of the first aid kits that do make it to the front line. Tourniquets are perhaps the most needed first aid tool, particularly when the evacuation process is prolonged. But if tourniquets are badly made, they can be lethal. There have been complaints from the front line about Chinese-made tourniquets that either gradually lose pressure or come apart, leading to renewed bleeding with fatal consequences. A Chinese tourniquet costs just £2, while a Ukrainian siege tourniquet is £15. An American cat tourniquet comes in around £35. Investing in decent tourniquets is money well spent. The medics I speak to say that two-thirds of Ukrainian soldiers die from blood loss. I met Bilka, 24, a medic in the 243rd Territorial Defense Battalion who has just returned from Bakhmut. She explains what happens to the injured person on the front line. You have to drag a person with your hands approximately 3 to 5 kilometers. You can't drive there even in armored vehicles because of the heavy shellings and mines. Medics, she says, try to avoid using the official first aid supplies issued to them because of the admin that is involved. Each component of a government-issued medical kit must be accounted for, including equipment that is obviously substandard. If a drug has expired, the write-off procedure is so difficult that it is easier to record that it has been destroyed by fire, she says. Some medical staff are funding equipment with contributions from their own salaries, even though the average doctor in Ukraine only earns about 300 pounds a month and a nurse half that sum. The situation has become so bad recently that medics at one hospital in Dnipro, which was overloaded with injured men from the front line, had to raise money to buy antibiotics, analgetics, and even gloves needed for treatments. Meanwhile, some three billion pounds a month is spent on warfare. I also talked to Yuri Kubrishko, the co-founder of the Leleka Foundation, another medical charity. He says that the surprise full-scale invasion last year was always going to mean there would be a shortfall of proper medical supplies. But 18 months later, the situation still hasn't improved. The problem with providing equipment to combat medics has been hushed up as it doesn't exist, he tells me. The military leadership can even refuse to accept new medical supplies because they are fully stocked with low-quality alternatives. They think that asking charities for help would undermine the authority and reputation of the armed forces. When it emerged that 15% of medical supplies donated by the West last year had passed their expiry date, it led to public outcry and criminal prosecutions. Officials from Ukraine's medical forces responded by saying they would inspect all medical kit in the army. But no guidelines or standards for those inspections have been issued. Senior officials in Kyiv do not seem prepared to complain or bothered enough to do drought checks before sending the first aid kits they receive on the front line. The leadership of the old establishment doesn't truly really understand what is wrong, says Kobrishko. Inspections are no use if people commissioned for the task have no idea what to look out for. They won't suddenly become tactical medicine specialists just because an order came from the above. 
As a result, reports are tinkered with, which in turn distorts the statistics on how much medical aid is required. Why should Ukraine ask for more medical equipment when officially the shortage doesn't really exist? Tetyana Ustashchenko, the commander of Ukraine's medical forces, has said in an interview that the problems Ukraine faces have no precedence in modern times. No Western country has experienced what Ukraine is going through. Two weeks ago, Ostashenko was given a final warning and ordered to undertake an inspection of frontline equipment, but the promised report has yet to materialize. If the criticism is constructive, then of course our reaction will be immediate, she says. To compound the problem, medics in Ukraine are also expected to fight. You can't sit and say, I'm a medic, I won't shoot. Everyone shoots, only after the fighting is carried out, then you provide the first aid, says Gurman, 27, a senior combat medic with the 243rd Territorial Defense Battalion. Perhaps unsurprisingly, combat medics sent out to rescue injured soldiers under Russian fire often lack both the training and the authority to deliver aid. Some have a medical background, but most must learn in the field, usually at the front line. A senior combat medic will teach junior members. In the whole of Ukraine, only one military base is capable of providing an official qualification for a junior medical personnel. That base turns out 300 medical cadets a month, but to allow for one medic for every 30 soldiers, Ukraine needs to train at least 15,000 combat medics. There are various private training centers which devise methods as they see fit. The UK has so far trained 17,000 Ukrainian soldiers since last February, some of whom are medics, but all too often they are used to working with a standard of kit that is unavailable in Ukraine and the training is not tailored to the war that is being fought. Gurman was trained in York. He tells me about the arguments he had had with his instructors. The medical course is focused on gunshot wounds, but in Ukraine, soldiers are being blown apart. You need to piece a whole person together, he says. Russian attacks target Ukrainian medics as a priority, he adds. If Volodymyr Zelensky was in a car and we were sitting in a car next to his, they would hit us first, because we save lives. Russian forces use drones to track medical vehicles and they fire them. Ukraine's military medical institutions have seen over 1,000 attacks since last year's invasion. Russia is, of course, responsible for the lives lost in this war. But it seems undeniable that the Ukrainian authorities' neglect of the medical necessities is leading to a far higher death toll. That was Svetlana Moronets. Next is Melanie McDonough. A kiss is just a kiss, no? But when it's Jenny Hermoso, the forward of this victorious Spanish women's football team on the receiving end, and the president of the Spanish Football Federation, Luis Rubiales, doing the kissing, and it's during the official post-match ceremony, in front of an interested global audience, it's different. Immediately afterwards, Miss Hermoso declared that she didn't like it. Rubiales was defiant. It was a kiss between two friends celebrating something, he declared, calling his critics idiots and stupid people. He may have had in mind the Minister of Equality in Spain's caretaker government, Irene Montero, who described the kiss as a form of sexual violence. Yes, well, it just shows you how fraught kissing is. In Spain, people do kiss each other as a social thing, on both cheeks, starting with the left. It's one of several nations where social kissing is the norm. Two kisses as usual, except in Christian Orthodox cultures like Serbia, 
where you do three, presumably in honour of the Trinity. Britain, too, has taken to the habit of cheek-kissing, though only in the last generation or so. Before, people shook hands or nodded. I had always been enchanted by the report that men kiss women's hands in Poland, but after meeting any number of Poles, I am sorry to report that they've dropped the habit. But have you ever thought just how weird kissing is? We do it as a matter of course. It's part of our idea of amorous behaviour. But it turns out it's not. In 2015, a group of social scientists published research, and that must have been fun, on the subject of romantic kissing in American Anthropologist, based on a set of 168 cultures and surveying 88 ethnographers. And it turns out that romantic kissing is common in only 46% of the cultures involved. The remaining 54% say it in other ways. Even in Britain, prostitutes used to bar their clients from lip-kissing. They considered that more intimate than actual sex. Anyway, the word to park for your next quiz is philematology, the study of kissing. There are more kisses than the romantic sort, though that has been documented since 2500 BC in Mesopotamia and Egypt. There were in the past lots of public kisses, of ritual, greeting, respect, deference. It seems the Greeks blew kisses at the kings and gods. Romans went in for different sorts, from the kiss of greeting to the erotic snog. Married Roman couples kissed each other with mouth closed. Plutarch says husbands kissed their wives to see if they had been drinking. Men of equal rank kissed to show goodwill. There are lots of kisses in the Bible besides the Song of Solomon. When Judas kissed Jesus, it wasn't an unusual gesture. St Paul told the Romans to greet each other with a holy kiss. In the early church and the Middle Ages, there was the kiss of peace, an actual smack around the lips. Not kissing was a source of contention between Thomas a Becket and Henry II. The interesting development is how, over time, lip kissing has been turned from a public act into an often private, sexual thing. So, kissing a female centre forward, how to describe that? I'd say it comes into the class of kiss that's called taking liberties. That was Melanie McDonough, and finally, here's Richard Maidley. Another week, another whitewash. The latest chunk of culture to be painted out of existence is Fat Bottom Girls, Queen's 1978 hit. Don't misunderstand me, I've never liked the song myself. I think it's crude, patronising and misogynistic. It was pretty dated even on the day that Queen recorded it. But that's my problem. Millions loved it. That's why it was track four on the band's 1981 Greatest Hits album. But as Universal Records re-release Queen's classic collection, Fat Bottom Girls is track nothing. Track gone. Track ghosted. We've got to stop doing this neo-puritanical cultural censorship, whether it be with songs or books. Just look at Enid Blyton's PC-filtered Famous Five or P.G. Woodhouse's Jeeves. Fairy stories, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, or films, Gone with the Wind. These icons from our past are a bit like maps. They guide us to our shared history. They tell us where we are today, how far we've come, or maybe sometimes how far we slipped. The present can have no meaning if we keep erasing the past. Queen sang about fat bottom girls. Maybe they shouldn't have, but they did. Pretending that they didn't is even more stupid than those 
crap lyrics. 7.30 on Tuesday morning, and for me at least, at last, a clear explanation for Lucy Letby and what she did. Evil personified? No, at least not in the metaphysical sense. A monster created by nurture? Again, no. Criminal psychologist Dr David Holmes, speaking to us on Good Morning Britain, dealt directly with the two fundamental questions that the rest of the world have been wrestling with for days. Why did she? How could she? In one of the most grimly fascinating interviews I've done recently, Holmes, an expert on psychopaths, made it clear that he personally has zero doubts about what drove Letby to become a serial killer. He said she's been on a preordained path from the day she was born. She's clearly very high on the scale, he told us, and it's a trait she was born with. She'll have a permanent brain configuration that means a total lack of empathy for others, but a hunger for control over them. So, according to Holmes, Letby is a natural-born psychopath, and she'll die one. Holmes explained that as Letby grew up, she would have realised she was profoundly different from everyone around her, that she was genuinely puzzled by what gave others pleasure because it left her cold. But like most psychopaths, she learned to shroud her inner self, constructing a sophisticated veneer of normality. Everyone was fooled. Indeed, so convincing was the performance that Letby's parents and some of her former school friends still refuse resolutely to believe that our lovely Lucy is guilty. So what about those scrawled post-it notes that the police found in Letby's bedroom, I asked? Remember those words? I killed them on purpose. I am evil. I did this. A momentary flash of insight or sanity or even remorse. No, said Holmes, just doodles to herself. Nothing more, nothing less. Certainly not remorse and definitely not some kind of weird confession. Nope, just doodles, I'm afraid. Holmes is relieved that Letby is incarcerated for life. She's not safe to release. She's a persistent and permanent danger to others. They say that to understand all is to forgive all. Hmm, well, forgive me but I think I'll pass on Lucy Letby. I dread Nigel Havers getting one of his regular bursts of publicity, which he's currently enjoying, starring in the West End revival of Noel Coward's Private Lives. Not because I bear a scintilla of ill will towards the man, it's just that people reckon, and have done for years, that we look pretty much identical. This week, London cabbies, yes, despite Uber, they still exist, have been yelling, Oi, Nigel, shouldn't you be on stage? I wonder if it's the same for him. Oi, Rich, shouldn't you be in bed? Up early in the morning, mate. I must ask him. Finally, if you're about to snatch a late summer holiday, here's a book to shove in your bag. Essex Dogs by Dan Jones. It's about the Hundred Years' War. It's set in 1346, but it has an amazingly contemporary feel. He makes the longbowmen, the English archers, sound like a blend of modern-day machine gunners and snipers. Except Jones says that while pretty much anyone can squeeze a trigger, shooting a longbow required phenomenal skill and phenomenal strength. In Essex Dogs, some likely lads try and have a go on one. They can't even pull the string back. Longbows were deadly at astonishing ranges. More than 300 yards, that's nearly the length of three football pitches. And at close quarters, an arrow could pass through two men and eviscerate both on the spot. 
But the book's pretty funny too. The Essex Dogs of the title are a company of freelance adventurers. And Joan says that he firmly based their often drunken marauding through France on exactly how boozy English soccer hooligans would behave 600 years later. It's a cracking read. Well, that was Richard Madeley, bringing us neatly to the end of this week's Spectator Out Loud. If you've enjoyed these articles and would like more, why not pick up a copy of the magazine? I'm Lyndon Kemcaran. Thanks for listening, and please do join us again next week. <laughs>